You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Ladies and gents, welcome to Before They Were Live, an ongoing and monthly conversation where we wander our way through the Disney animated canon in chronological order, creating comical tributes suitable to the occasion of these films, extemporized and thought up before your very eyes, or ears, as the case may have it, playing our part in a healthy ecosystem between art and criticism and fandom. We strive to put all our sweepings into dialogue with one another, picking through the detritus in order to examine the past and understand the present. We're interested in how these movies move us and shape our imaginations. Hopefully, along the way, we enrich the experience of these animated films and have some fun, too. Today, we are stravaging along on another deuterocanonical trip through the trackless jungle just waiting to be explored of 1964's Mary Poppins. We do these little side excursions when we reach the end of a decade. Although because the 60s and 70s had so few animated features, we've combined them. In the past, we've looked at shorts, but this is the first time we're looking at a full length. Producer Sam Godwin wrote uh, Disney after seeing the film. You have made a great many pictures, Walt, that have touched the hearts of the world. But you have never made one so wonderful, so magical, so joyous, so completely the fulfillment of everything a great motion picture should be as Mary Poppins. Gentlemen gentlemen like my co-host are few. Forbearance is the hallmark of his creed. He's the cream of the crop, tip of the top. He's Michael Farmer. There we stop. Thanks, Josh. It is a jolly holiday with you. It is always a jolly holiday with you as well. It just makes my heart beat like a big brass band. Now our listeners are picturing me holding your hand, so we should move on. We should move on. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, a great movie, huh? Yeah, I, I mean, Goldwyn's praise seems a little... Uh, over dramatic to me, but it is it is a really good movie. Yeah, um, I I I find myself so I watched this one a lot as a as a child, and then I I came back to it years later. Um, and I don't I don't know. There's something about this this movie that I just I find very touching um, in a way I can't really even explain to myself. Like I find the funny parts really funny, and uh, the you know the more I, I don't know. I feel I like it's like an emotionally lifting movie, I guess, you know, um, and and I, I just really enjoy it. I like I'm, but, but I'm, in a strange way. Right. Because it's not it's not sappy or sentimental, really. And the, the main character is I'm trying to think of the best way to put this. She's kind of cold. She's not the nicest person in the world. Yeah, uh, she is. Um, well, she's always like hesitant to actually use her um you know she's always rolling her eyes at Bert because Bert wants to you know let's jump into this uh uh let's jump into this 
painting, you know, and the, and the kids are like, oh, this is such a fabulous day today. And she's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. So, yeah, she's uh, she's very bizarre. <laughs> well, well she, she she does that, and then she ends up going along with them anyway as if it was her plan all along. So I, she, she really is a strange character. Yeah, she's hard to get your... Um, your head around, I guess. Have you read the books? Um, I have not. I, I started them in preparation to to do this episode, but I didn't I didn't even finish the first one. So supposedly she's much meaner in the books. She's much less uh, warm, even though mm. I, I don't find her particularly warm in the movie. Yeah, uh, there's there's a whole movie about this. Have you seen that? The Saving Mr. Banks. I have. Yeah, and uh, so apparently, um, Travers herself, Peel. Is that her name? P.L. Travers? I think it's P.L., yeah. Yeah. um, Was never very satisfied with uh, the adaptation. um, Or, you know, I guess the the story changes a little bit depending on who's telling it. But um, she seems to have been a little um, little, uh, hard to get your head around her as well. You know, (laughs) like not not necessarily always consistent in in what she wanted and and um how she wanted the characters to be portrayed and stuff so and the movie kind of offers a freudian explanation for that right that because mr banks is based on her father with whom she had some emotional problems this is why she couldn't uh, immediately see the genius of the warm and friendly tom hanks disney I liked that movie while it was going on, but the more I thought about it, and especially the more I read about the actual story behind it, the more annoyed I got with the movie. Mm. And in particular, the Paul Giamatti character, the limo driver, uh, has a daughter in a wheelchair who is completely made up. The limo driver didn't exist. The girl in the wheelchair didn't exist. And it's used in a very un-Mary Poppins way as this kind of cheap sentimentality which again, one of the glories of this movie is that it is somehow sweet without being sentimental. Yeah, that's strange that they did that. I I don't I didn't know any of that. Um, I I watched the I watched uh, Saving Mr. Banks one day when I was sick, and so um, you know the you know when you watch a movie when you're sick, it kind of uh, <laughs> fades into this like weird blur of uh, waking and sleeping. So. Sure. Um, Which might be the I, perfect I, way to watch that movie. It, it may be, <laughs> um, but it was—it's weird that they would add a character like that because, um, uh, in in some of my reading, I I saw that um, Disney had—I think who was he trying to persuade? Somebody—he was trying to persuade somebody to join this film. Um, I can't remember if it was Julie Andrews or not. I don't want to misspeak, but um, she had had, I think her dad was a doctor and was, was helping someone who's disabled and Disney had him flown out. And um, so, yeah, like if they needed that character, that character seem seemingly would have existed in real life, you know, you would think so. Yeah. And maybe that was the inspiration for it. And they just, you know, the, because of the, the, the way the film was being adapted or whatever that they, they decided to change it up. Who knows? Sure. But can we agree we'd rather see a million saving Mr. Banks's than uh, one live action remake of a cartoon? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, why not? Yeah, I'll agree to that. Um, anyway, I didn't want to get too far down that road, but I, I do think that there is something uh, in the character of Mary Poppins um, that comes from Traverse herself, you know, just yeah. um, kind of an eccentric sort of lady who, yeah, could could come off as as cold, but also obviously wrote this you know, charming book for for children and um, 
yeah, brings, you know, I mean, the movie wouldn't exist without her, you know, so. Absolutely. So you say you watched this when you were a kid. I never saw it as a kid. I, I was aware of the Jolly Holiday and Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious sequences because I had a sing-along video that included them. But mm. this is this is not a movie I had any kind of interaction with until I was an adult. Um, and yet I still love it. So... Uh, I don't. I don't know what that says about it, but often, oftentimes with these movies, especially the Disney live-action movies, which I think are largely mediocre, if you don't get them at the right time of your life, you're probably never going to love them. I, did you grow up watching Herbie the Love Bug, for example? Uh, I did not. I I think I saw it once, but yeah, I don't. I don't really recall Herbie the Love Bug. <laughs> it, it's terrible. Um, and, and people of a certain age like it because they saw it when they were were kids. Mary Poppins, I think, holds up in a in a way that those other movies just don't. Um, and you know, I had forgotten how little animation there really is in this movie. It, it's just the one sequence that has animation in it. The rest is all practical effects. Yeah, they do. They do a lot of um, different things in this movie um, with uh, innovation-wise. Like, I think they were they were really pushing the the limits of um, a variety of different innovations when they were making this movie. Um, one being the combination of the live action and animation, which is done much better here than <laughs> um, whenever we saw it before. Um, what did we see before? When did oh, we, we talk saw, about that? We talked about it with the with the. Um, the the movies made in the wartime the, That's the right. South American films. That's right. Um, yeah, they, it was yeah. kind of chintzy there, and they they've almost perfected it here. I, I mean, the what what you'll see two and a half decades later in Roger Rabbit is better than this, but it's not leaps and bounds better than this. They do they do a really good job. Um, I, I'm thinking of the scene where the carousel horses are running through the real world, mm-hmm. and and you can see like it tears up the ground when the horses go down into it. Yeah, which is a nice, which is a nice detail. They spent, uh, they clearly spent a lot of money on this movie. Mm-hmm. Which after yeah, they, after watching all those '60s and '70s movies, it's nice to see Disney spending money. You know yeah, what I mean? Because everything we watched yeah. has been so cheap. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think that the the amount of money spent definitely comes through. Um, yeah, this is actually the even those animation sequences are made at the same time as. Let's see. They were working on like Sword in the Stone at the same time, you know, and I, I feel like the animation here is so much uh, better than Sword in the Stones. So yeah, you, you see, you definitely see where the attention went. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the animator that I've mentioned on the show before, um, Andrea Stasia, uh, he he said in in you know the bonus features stuff that I watched that because uh, he worked on Roger Rabbit and he said yeah we you know we added better. Um, shading and highlighting and stuff on the characters, but when you look at the um, the the animation that um, Frank Thomas did on on the penguins, he's like it's still very humbling. Like the the solutions that he came up with, because I guess the the they kind of let Dick Van Dyke do whatever he wanted in that dancing um, without really con- consulting the animator. So um, then when Frank Thomas was getting it back, you know, he, he found that, you know, it was difficult to, to fit his penguins in with some of those moves, but that's, that's why he figured out how to, you know, have the penguins duck at all at different times and stuff like that, you know, to avoid, avoid the dance. So, um, you know, he says, uh, uh, the animator would fuss and complain and call a few names, but in the end, he would become more inventive and more entertaining than he would have been if everything had been easy for him. No animator ever would back away from such a challenge. 
Yeah, and so. I mean the the penguin sequence in particular is indelible. I think that's a that's a thing almost everybody remembers about the movies. Yeah, and of course they it's show a, up again in Roger Rabbit as the as the waiters at whatever that the is it the Ink and Paint Club is it the name of the club in Roger Rabbit? Anyway, uh, yeah. they they get used again, which probably shows you how much Deja Deja how much he um how much he loves that sequence. Mm-hmm. Definitely, and uh, and that's another instance of that was a that was a Walt Disney you know, addition, late, late addition, you know, like they, they'd already had the scene all planned out with, with actual waiters. And then Walt comes in and says, you know, waiters have always reminded me of penguins. Maybe we should do it with animated penguins. And, um, uh, we get that, that example of him again, elevating a movie with his own, uh, brilliance, which we haven't seen in a long time. I guess he was more involved in this than he'd been, uh, you're more invested in this one than he'd been in, in, in a really long time. So, well, and I mean that that might go to show you why the '60s movies are so disappointing because not just the money, but um, Disney's attention was going toward this instead of toward uh, Sword in the Stone or what what have you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that also gets back to what you were saying about this one being a little more. You're able to catch it at different times and still enjoy it. Um, it's not just the, the childhood time that, that maybe this one would speak to you. Um, the, the, uh, the biography of Walt Disney that I've referenced a million times on this show, um, was talking about how in this, this movie, um, there's kind of a reversion of, um, some of the other movies. So a lot of, a lot of the movies are children, uh, coming into adulthood and discovering the the importance of being responsible or um, testing their courage or expressing love these sorts of things. Whereas this movie, it's more releasing the child within the adult, right? And um, so, Poppins taught the children joy, how to fight bureaucracy, convention, complacency, uh, which were the drawbacks of adulthood. In his earlier films, had spoken if. His earlier films had spoken to young Walt Disney's need for empowerment. Poppins spoke to the older Walt Disney's predicament as a corporate captain burdened with duties, and he could certainly identify both with Mr. Banks, the stodgy banker who has a child lurking within him, and with Mary Poppins, the magical nanny who manages to uh, emancipate the child. The film embodied his new vicarious dream of shirking responsibilities he knew he couldn't really shirk, of being the child that reporters often said he was, but he couldn't really be. So I think that, like, that that speaking to the the child within the adult um, is another reason why this this movie is wild, widely appealing. Well, and it, it does something interesting, which is it makes you think it's going to be a movie about Jane and Michael, but it's not really a movie about them. It's a movie about Mr. Manx. Um, so it, it kind of sneaks you in under the idea that this is a children's movie, when in fact, in its way, it's a movie for adults. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when I came back to it as an adult, I was I was shocked because I had remembered. Well, this I mean this this movie is still first and foremost a, a musical. Like it's built around the songs. The 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 plot is really built around the songs, which are probably the Sherman Butters' best songs, don't you think? I would think so. Yeah. Um, but so that of course those are the things that I remembered as a, as a kid. You know, like I remembered um, Jolly Holiday with Mary, and I remembered um, the. Uh, Chim chim chimney chim 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 chimery, yeah. <laughs> um, and step in time, of course, was was a huge favorite when I was a kid. Um, I remember uh, me and my brothers would always get up and we'd be you know dancing around the room whenever that song uh, came on in the in the movie. So 
um, those are the things I remembered when I watched it as an adult. I was like, wow, there's some really strong, like anti anti capitalist, anti imperialist messages in this movie that I I had no like sense of as a child, you know. Yeah, yeah. It's always funny when a big budget Disney picture is anti capitalist. You see it again in Newsies. Yeah, um, oh, which is another movie I love. I love I love Newsies. Now, Newsies, um, Newsies. I think if you didn't see it when you're 12 years old, you're never gonna like it because I <laughs> I do not like that movie in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, but we won't. If we do that episode, it'll be uh, a long time from now. So yeah, um, there's no animation in that one. So, but so anyway, yeah, I, I I think that's great though that there's that that. Uh, that sentiment within the movie, and you're right. It is it is ironic coming from um, uh, obviously a highly capitalistic venture <laughs> as uh, you know Disney a Disney uh, mainstream movie is. But um, well, I mean, I guess what I would say is it's not so much an anti-capitalist movie as it is an anti-greed movie. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the idea is not that money is bad or that private property is bad. It's that there are better ways to spend your money than saving it and hoarding it and buying really fancy things with it, right? Because the, the the sequence with Michael and the tuppence that he doesn't want to invest, he wants to uh, give to the bird lady. The point's not that investment is wrong necessary, necessarily. It's that uh, investment is not an absolute good and that there are there are things you can do that seem like you're wasting money that are nevertheless good uses of money the kite yeah. also by the way costs tuppence I, I i think that's a, a fairly subtle piece that that went by me the first time i saw the movie that the same tuppence that he could have given to the bird lady or could have invested also buys the uh, paper and strings for the kite another waste of time and money right yeah yeah, and I think that's a. I think the Tuppence actually um, is is a good. Uh, so I, I read a a chapter from a book called Christianity and the Culture Machine, uh, which is by Vincent F. Uh, Rocchio. Rocchio. I'm not sure um, how you pronounce his name, uh, but he has a whole chapter on Mary Poppins, and he he draws out the Tuppence as um, this kind of. Uh, the, you can follow the tuppence through the through the movie and see how it it changes the its meaning at each at each point um, uh, just slightly changes its meaning at each point and then see how um, so in the begin I think the first mention of the tuppence is with the birds and then uh, they're wanted as an investment and then um, and then like you said they they come back again as the oh he puts them actually into the the hand of the um, the director, he brings them up again at that point, and then he, and then at the end, of course, he mentions it with the with the kite, as you said. And so in the in the beginning, it's um, almost a a um, what an act of of charity, um, and then oh, but then when you but then by the time you get to uh, um, the the boardroom. Uh, he he draws a parallel between that and uh, render under Caesar's. What is Caesar's? Uh, because you see the they actually zoom in on the coins at that point, and you can see the the uh, the queen and the and a kind of Romanesque figure on them as as he hands them over. And so I don't know. It was an, it was an interesting analysis. I thought. Sure. Yeah. And again, that's something that went totally over my head the first few times I saw the movie. Oh yeah, I, I didn't. 
I, I wouldn't have picked it out of, had I not read this book, but I, I, felt, I felt like his analysis was good because I, I, he did a lot to draw. So he also um, ties it to the widow's might at one point because, you know, it's a it's a, it's the small thing that you give, but it can have a big influence on um, and which is which is actually, um, uh, you know, it's Mary Poppins thought in, in, you know, the song Feed the Birds is that, uh, you know, the saints and apostles are looking down at this small act and and uh, they're pleased with it. Um, but then it's kind of um, what's like weirdly paralleled or darkly paralleled in the, you know, in the invest your money song, because it's, you know, with these tuppence, there'll be, you know, railways across Africa and uh, uh, dams across the Nile and all this sort of thing. You know? Oh, so, yeah, all this imperialist interference in the world yeah it is a subversive movie in its way i mean i I think one thing people forget is that the is it the first song in the movie is sister suffragette but the the background Mm -hmm. of this movie is women's women fighting for the right to vote and i mean the the mother is not there because she's constantly going to sing to women who have been put in prison yeah is is that part of the is that part of the book do you know I don't think it is. I think they changed this the time frame of this movie from the time frame of the book. Ah, because I mean, it is it is something that is semi going on at the time the movie is released because it's you have second wave feminism with with women um, fighting to be allowed to enter the workplace, mm-hmm. um, which I, I I find interesting because the movie is so ambivalent about it. On the one hand. You know, it's not treated as a stupid cause for women to be allowed to vote. And I mean, this is this is as female centric a movie, I think, as you're going to find in the Disney vaults until the 21st century. Uh, And yet also the reason the children need a nanny, the reason they're left alone is that the mother is going to um, go going off to, to do this political work. And that's a common criticism of second wave feminism as well, that in in giving women the right to enter the workplace, they've they've kind of uh, abandoned their families in certain ways. There's a famous essay a few years ago by Michael Pollan um, where, he, where he argues that the reason Americans eat poorly is the women's lib movement because they left the house and then there was nobody to cook real food anymore so everybody was eating TV dinners. I suspect that's kind of an oversimplification of Pollan's point. Um, but I, I, you, you, I think you do see that tension here in Mary Poppins as well. Yeah, I agree. I think there's a lot of tension um, that's put there, and I, I think in some ways it's uh, it's interesting. So, I mean, the kids are abandoned in in a lot of ways by both their their father and their mother, right? And Mary Poppins has to step in and fill that role um, because you know he's he abandons them to uh, this idea of the uh, what you know it's the age of men, it's the Edwardian life, you know, like whatever his song you know says, um, and you know, basically his, his role in the family is to, uh, uh, be, uh, be the, the, the wise king, <laughs> you know? Well, yeah, he um, seems to imagine himself as some sort of feudal lord. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, I mean, he says <laughs> noblesse of liege or whatever in his song, you know, like, and, and he wants the, you know, the, the heirs, the heirs to his kingdom, you know, to be there, uh, you know, bathed and fed as soon as he walks in the door and he pats him on the head and he sends him off, you know, like that's, that's his interaction with them. Um, so I don't, I don't know. There, there is a tension on, uh, I think, going in both directions right uh, like it, it's not it's not just 
her responsibility that she's abandoned the family for this women's suffragette movement. Um, it's also his responsibility for abandoning his, his kids in order to follow, you know, the, this, this ideal. Right. I, well, and I also think that um, it was not atypical of middle class and upper class families to not raise their own children. I, I think that was quite common. So I don't know that we should we should cast too many aspersions on uh, on the Bankses because I, I think they're kind of just going along with their culture. But part of the point of the movie is the culture's wrong, right? And in doing that, it's not so much for the good of the children that Mary Poppins corrects them. It's for his own good. Like he becomes he becomes better when he ignores the uh the norms of his society in terms of what men are supposed to do yeah and i think that actually um it ends up being articulated best by bert um rather than mary poppins uh when bert's uh both to the kids you know he talks about their father being in a cage and that that cages come in all all different sizes including ones that look like banks um and then uh when he's uh you know, cleaning up, cleaning up his his broom sweeping, and he kind of, uh, you know, in a in a sly way, uh, talks about kind of the uh, what the the logical ends of where Mr. Banks's life is heading. Um, that that's what kind of helps awaken in him that oh, you know, like I'm not uh, maybe maybe the things that I'm idealizing are not are not the best things. Yeah. What is that beautiful house? Where does that highway go to? Am I right or am I wrong? My God, what have I done? Are you quoting something there? Yeah, that's uh, Once in a Lifetime of the Talking Heads. Oh, okay. <laughs> something for the show notes. Yeah. <clears throat> the other thing I see in that speech of Bert's is a criticism and this is this is a inchoate idea i haven't really worked it out but a, a criticism of specialization so one of the reasons mr banks is in a cage is because the only thing he can do is be a banker but bert is defined by the fact that he does any job he wants to do at any time and he doesn't stick with any of them for very long he's a jack of all trades and kind of a master of all trades as well because he's really good at everything he does and and so there's a freedom in that where there's not a freedom in having to go to the same bank every day and do the same, um, no doubt, boring thing every day for a living. Whereas Bert gets to have fun painting sidewalks and uh, uh, playing in a one-man band. And he even enjoys being a chimney sweep, which, of course, is one of the worst occupations human beings have ever come up with. Uh, but he that that makes him free in a way that Mr. Banks is not free. And if you think about it, it's how childhood works too, right? Because children, I suspect, very rarely do the same thing every day. I really, yeah, I like, I like this idea. I've not, um, I've not thought of that, and I've not seen it in any of the things I've been reading about. Um, so, way to be original, Michael. That's, <laughs> I think that's Thank a really, you. I think that's a really lovely idea that, um, you know, because Bert, Bert is an an interesting character. Um, uh, because he does guide us through the story um, very literally, you know, like he, he greets you at the beginning of the movie and says, oh, hello, you know. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that, the, that what creates his freedom is his, his lack of vocation in a way. Or his vocation is, is, is more, um, I don't know, more open. Yeah, it's a great idea. Yeah, he, he does what the moment requires him to do, I suppose. 
Yeah. And never also, um, I think this ties into to another larger theme in the movie of, of uh, you know, the, the small things mattering. Um, none, none of the things that he does are, are particularly grandiose, right? Um, well, I mean, you think about the sidewalk chalk. Uh, it rains and it's washed away. So he spent all this time drawing these beautiful pictures, improbably, from sidewalk chalk uh, outside the park. And then it rains and it's all gone. And he says, well, there's more where that came from. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he also he also has a sense that what he's doing is of it's renewable in some ways, right? Because the same is true of chimney sweeping. Once you once you sweep a chimney, it's not like you've swept it once and for all. You've got to keep going back and doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of constant return and constant motion in a way that there's not again at the bank. This bank is what it has been forever. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm sure it's not an accident that the head of the bank and the second in command of the bank have the same name. Yeah, and everybody dresses exactly the same. And, you know, it's like you can just, you, they're, they're replaceable in a different, in a different way, right? Like they're just, they're the same. They're, they're like clones of each other almost. Right, right. And I mean, in fact, in the, in the sequel, Mary Poppins Returns, the, the son is again played by Dick Van Dyke. Yeah. So he really has replicated himself. Yeah, I think that's a, a really fun way to to think about Bert and his role in this movie. We have to talk about how good the Dick Van Dyke performance is. Um, this, this has to be one of the most charismatic performances in film history. He's just so immediately uh, magnetic and likable, and uh, he has maybe the most charming smile I've ever seen in my life. Uh, and, and so you're you're almost immediately willing to follow Bert wherever he leads you, which of mm-hmm. course is exactly what you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, yeah. What, what more can you say? You know, like he's, he's, um, he, yeah, he's, he, I think you used the, exactly the right words, magnetic and charming, <laughs> like right from the beginning. So, um, yeah, you just want to be there with him. You want to see what he's up to. Um, you, you want to, I mean, the the one introducing him as the one man band thing is is so great you know like you just want to be there in that circle with him and uh you know see what he see what he has to say my favorite gag about that is when he's leading you to cherry tree lane uh the drum keeps beating <laughs> i thought yeah. that was a nice detail very funny yeah we also should say though that uh his his terrible cockney accent gave generations of americans the wrong idea about how british people speak <laughs> Hugh Laurie uh, called that an act of war, <laughs> which yeah. I never I never understood until I thought about the way Southern accents are so terrible in movies. Mm. And, oh well, that that must be how British people feel about Dick Van Dyke. Yeah, yeah. What can you do? It's, yeah, but it was his performances outside outside of the accent. I think is 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 absolutely wonderful. Yeah. It, it's it's almost impossible to imagine anybody but him in that role. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he attributes a lot of that enthusiasm uh, to uh, Disney himself. He said that you know he says that he 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 grew up wanting to uh, be in a Disney movie, and then uh, when he got the opportunity, you know, he jumped at it. And uh, it was it was Walt's enthusiasm for the movie that really you know uh, turned into his enthusiasm for the movie. So, um, but yeah, what a I. 
his his faces and his I don't know it's just you know the way he's built the that kind of lankiness I guess you know like his his body is just absurd the scene where he's playing the old man at the bank and he's coming out of his office with the cane and almost falls down the stairs yeah <laughs> he he looks like a marionette <laughs> he does and then yeah and then and they of course they use that to great effect when he's you know he's saying with you know if the banks of England fall England falls and he's falling over the whole time you know. It's really, really great. Yeah, it's a great performance. It almost overshadows Julie Andrews as Mary Poppins, although um, that's a much quieter performance, but still, I mean, obviously very good. And Julie Andrews is one of the greats, and everybody loves her for good reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although this is this is kind of her breakout of performance. Um, this is her first big film. and Sound of Music is the following year. Think about that. She yeah. Does, she does Mary Poppins one year and Sound of Music the next. Two of the best-loved musicals of all time yeah. right in a row. She had been in Sound of Music on Broadway already by this time. Is that right? Yeah, I think so, as well as My Fair Lady. Um, right, right. Yeah. My Fair Lady was the role that she actually coveted, um, and then she she lost it to um, Audrey Hepburn. Audrey Hepburn. And Who doesn't so, even do her own singing in that movie. Yeah. And so then uh, – yeah, but what a you know what a great turn of events for the rest of us, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, we get, we get Mary Poppins out of it. Um, That's right. A much better movie, I think, than My Fair Lady. Although My Fair Lady is pretty good. Yeah. Yeah, I enjoy them both, but they're very they're very different movies. So yeah, we should spend some time probably talking about the music as we've as we've danced around to the fact that this is a musical. Um, do you do you have a uh, a song you want to? talk about i love jolly holiday I, I don't know that i have a lot to say about it but i think it's the best movie the best song in the movie it's so sweet um it's it's very upbeat and cheerful and hummable mm-hmm. i like it much better than supercalifragilisticexpialidocious which follows it immediately and even as a child i couldn't understand why it got so much more press than jolly holiday which to me is the obviously superior song mm. I love the David Tomlinson song. What's I, I, the the father's song at the beginning? The life I lead. Yeah, the life I lead is great. Which, which shows up in a few different variations throughout the movie. I mean, there's really not a dud song here. Although I must say that I don't really care for Feed the Birds, Walt Disney's favorite song in any yeah. of his movies. Yeah, I like it. I I. Like I said, this 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 movie is really moving to me when I'm watching it. You know, outside the movie, feed the birds, like whatever. But within the movie, I think it just works. It works really well. I, yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. Yeah. What's your favorite? Um, well, yeah, as I mentioned earlier, I just I love Step in Time as a kid. Um, I, I, just that whole sequence is is so wonderfully fun. Um, with you know, dancing and you know, dancing up on the rooftops and over over the chimneys and and between the, you know, the the gaps in the buildings. Um. Uh, and it's just it's so lively and, yeah, I really, I don't know if I'd say it's my favorite, but it's, it's it's probably my favorite sequence in the in the movie. Sure. Yeah, it's a great. I, I always forget about I always forget about Stay Awake, um, until I watch the movie. But I'm like, oh, I should remember this because you know sometimes my kids don't want to go to sleep, and it's like, oh, I should I should learn Stay Awake. <laughs> I wonder if it would work, <laughs> or if you have to be Julie Andrews. Yeah, probably you do, <clears throat> and I am known Julie Andrews, that's for sure. Um, Spoonful of Sugar is the other famous one, mm-hmm. which is you know a great song, inspired by one of the Sherman Brothers' sons had to get the polio. 
uh, vaccine, and they put it on a sugar cube for him. So that's where hmm. that's where the that's where the song came from. Yeah, I forget which Sherman brother it is. What are we leaving out? I feel like there's an, another big song that we've forgot. Oh, Chim Chimmery. Yeah, Chim Chimmery and Let's Go Fly. I, I feel like are the other really the big big songs. Yeah, uh, two more songs that I knew as a kid, even though I hadn't seen the movie. Yeah. Uh, that, I mean, th- these really are indelible songs. Uh, th- these are these are songs I think that are almost universally beloved as much as any kind of show tune could be universally beloved. And and there's a reason for that, which is that they're great, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's really, it's amazing that they all end up in one movie, you know? Like, you just, I mean, I don't, I don't know, like, how many musicals there are, <laughs> you know? Like, I mean, I know, like, it's a, it's a huge genre, but, like, it, it just always seems unfair when, like, one musical ends up with all the best, best uh, songs. <laughs> Yeah, they really they outdid themselves on this one. I think the Sherman Brothers did. Yeah, they really they really did, and and you know they 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 did uh, a number of other Disney movies, and then they did uh, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which I've never seen, and they did I think they did Bedknobs and Broomsticks, which does not have a single song that I can remember in it. Uh, so uh, this this really is their their finest work, even though most of the other movies they write for also have some really great songs and of course they write uh, a number of songs for the theme parks they wrote it's a small world and i mean that's the big one i'm sure they wrote mm-hmm. other ones that i can't think of at the moment yeah so you have them to blame for it's a small world if you don't like it yeah well we can thank them for the, the songs in the, this movie because they're just yeah they're really yeah, it's it's interesting to me the you know um, the the process of storytelling where uh, apparently Disney kind of came to them first and said hey you need to start writing songs for for this book you know um, and then the the way you you build a movie around the music uh, rather than you know have a story and then ins- inserting music I, I don't know for for me that just seems like a weird weird way of, of doing it but um, but don't it, you it feel really like well. don't you feel like the story has always been kind of secondary. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, I mean, the movies we've been talking about, it, it, it does seem like the story has taken a backseat to the animation in a lot of cases, and it's been fine for it. You know, it's it's not been a big deal. Um, so it, it makes sense to me that they would build it around, especially since they already had a book to work from, that they would build it around the, the songs. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose you're right. And I, I suppose, I mean, maybe, you know, people who write musicals, this is all, this is the way that they're written, you know, like that's, that's very straightforward. Um, I just, uh, I don't, I don't, I've never written a musical. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, it, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know how that works. I know that usually the uh, script, the book, as they call it, is written by a different person than the people who write the music. Mm-hmm. And, you know, nobody ever talks about the book to a to a musical. It's always about the song. So maybe they do start with the songs and then write the write the book around it. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, this, I mean, this this movie, it, uh, even even though it is built around the songs that way, I think in some ways it doesn't feel as episodic as um, as it could. You know, like yeah, uh, it, I, I think it still flows together nicely. And I think it helps that it all takes place over, you know, a very short time. Um, it also helps that they have reprises for a number of the songs, so it ties everything back together. Mm-hmm. I mentioned It's a Small World, which 
is more important to this movie than it might initially seem, so I'm going to make the case for it. Uh, it's a Small World as an attraction was built for the 1964 World's Fair, which was a, a really big deal for Disney. Uh, they did. I, I have a box set of of audio from from their contributions to the World's Fair. So they have. It's a small world, and they have a like a House of the Future, I think, and then they have um, the Carousel of Progress and all sorts of stuff like that. But this is a this is a chance for Disney and his Imagineers to develop their audio animatronics. Uh, the, these kind of talking robots. If you if if our listeners don't know what audio animatronics are. And I don't think it's an accident that Mary Poppins comes out in 1964, the same year as the World's Fair, because there's a lot of animatronic stuff in this movie that will look familiar to people who are who have been to one of the theme parks. Um, so, for example, uh, the scene where Mary Poppins is singing with the robin at the beginning of Spoonful of Sugar, I think it is, uh, the Robin is is an audio animatronic. They could have done it as a cartoon, but instead they did it as this semi-realistic robot. And the animation, I think, has aged better than the audio animatronics in the movie, but the vast majority of effects in this movie are actually audio animatronic rather than um, than animated. And uh, kind of cool for that, especially if you're into that kind of weirdo, hyper-real uh, audio animatronic look. What did you think about those effects? Yeah, so I'm I'm the the Robin is the one that comes to mind. What is is there another? Um, you said there's is there another one in the movie besides? Yeah, the there's Robin? a there's a couple other ones I think, and now I can't remember what they are. It's like um, maybe something to do with her bag. Oh, her um her parrot on the, the oh, end of the right. the yeah. umbrella at the that end. That makes sense. Yeah, who that makes sense. who is straight out of the Enchanted Tiki Room? Uh, but yeah, so so that's the. That's the sort of stuff we're talking about. And there's a couple other smaller ones. Yeah, I think the Robin is very charming. Like I, uh, I, 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 I don't know. It's 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 one of those weird things. Like there's there's a look to this movie that that is um, that's older. You know, like uh, we don't really see things. I, I don't know if it's the lighting or the staging or what. You know, like I, I don't I don't I don't know how to put my finger on it. But the the movie looks you know like a 1960s movie and so the fact that the animatronics kind of look 1960s like it, it it works you know for me like i don't look at it and be like oh wow that 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 doesn't that doesn't hold up well or that didn't age well like i i think i think it's really cool but i i am more prone to uh enjoy those sorts of you know weird you know uh tech technological <laughs> um things like that you know no, I, I absolutely agree that the, the kind of chintziness of those animatronics is charming now. I think at the time they were probably very exciting, very realistic effects. Yeah. Uh, it's funny how effects work like that, right? I remember I remember seeing The Two Towers, I think. and it had, Is that the one with the Balrog? Mm, maybe, yep. Whatever. Whichever the Lord of the Rings, you know, I'm, I'm on record as not liking the the books or the movies. But I remember seeing the Balrog. No, that's why I'm feeling embarrassed that I'm not, like, uh, which when's the Balrog show up? I don't know. But but I, I, I don't care for those movies. So just I, I, but love the I, I remember when they first came out thinking, oh, that special effect is like photorealistic, and you look back at it now and it, it looks really fake. Mm. Um, so it's it's interesting the way we're trained to see things as um, as realistic. 
right. based on technological advancements. So I'm sure when this came out, people were like, oh my gosh, it looks just like a real Robin, because that, that scene wouldn't have been possible before this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my... I think you get kind of a similar thing with some of the Star Wars movies as well, like the special effects stuff in the Star Wars movies. Yeah, and I tend to feel like uh, practical effects hold up better than digital effects. So, you know, like those original Star Wars movies, I feel like, yeah, you can tell, like, some of the practical effects aren't, you know, as as up to, you know, what it, what they would be by today's standard. But I feel like, uh, I don't know, what you call it, the chintziness, like, kind of works, you know? Whereas yeah. digital effects, I feel like the opposite. Like, it's like, wow, that, that looks really bad. <laughs> but I, I think the opposite is true of Mary Poppins. I think the, the animation looks looks less dated than the um the audio animatronics and i'm sure that's just because the animation's not supposed to look realistic you know what i mean it's not like yeah, you're trying to fool you that's yeah i think that's probably really true the there's there's a classicness to that flat 2d animation um that you know it won't you know like it it'll continue to to age at at kind of that it's it's timeless in its way you know whereas um my experience with what you're talking about with like the Balrog is like remembering, um, you know, being a kid and being excited about like the next upcoming round of video games and how, you know, how cool they looked and, and how photorealistic they looked. And then going back and looking at, at some of the, the that work now and be like, <laughs> like how boxy it is, you know, like it's, it's kind of shocking. So anyway, the, the, the Robin I, I think is, is really cool. And I, th- I think uh, like you said, like it's it's hard looking at it now because so many of the the innovations that they came up with in this movie are are just kind of commonplace today. But they're commonplace because of Mary Poppins, you know. So um, I don't know, being able to to do that blending of of live action and animation, um, the uh, you know some of the the stunts, the tricks, like the things that she's pulling out of her bag, the camera work on that, the the people on wires, you know, flying for the um, they use that that effect a lot actually. Like they use it from the very beginning with the the nannies all being blown away, and um, they you know it's an addition in some of the dance numbers like uh, Jolly Holiday, like you mentioned, like Bert does the little uh, like he can fly at one point, you know, like. And it's it's very brief, you know. He just lifts off the ground for a little too long, you know, or he sweeps sweeps Mary around a little too too easily, you know. Um, I think a, a lot of that stuff was was very probably amazing for for people who were seeing it at the time. Yeah, yeah, and I mean, some of that is invisible. So I didn't even think about the the nannies being blown away as a special effect. It didn't even cross my mind. Where you're right, in 1964, that must have been amazing. Yeah. And then some of them, um, because they have aged, we look at it. We, when you look at the Robin, you don't see a Robin. You see a robotic Robin, right? And so what you enjoy about it is the roboticness of it. Like, oh, look at the look at the model of the Robin. Um, but I, I imagine in 1964, you looked at it and you saw a Robin. Mm-hmm. So that's interesting. And, and that, that helps the movie hold up. But it holds up in a different way. It feels like a period piece now, even though... A period piece that's not the period that it's set in, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Mm. I'm trying to think if there's another effect in there that I love. I guess we could talk about the uh, the the laughing song, which I think is probably my least favorite of the the the, the songs. Um, but they do they do the the you know they they go up in the roof and um, uh, apparently there there's actually 
three different sets, three or four different sets for this, so that they could um, they could do the wires differently in different ones, and they could do the cameras differently in different ones, so that the the idea was that the audience wouldn't be able to figure out how they did it. You know, so did um, they just do it with wires. Um, so I think uh, yeah, everybody's on wires, but because of the the different um, the different heights of the different sets, they uh, they could put the wires at different places, and so every time. Uh, Disney's idea was every every time an audience might start thinking like, oh, I know how they do it, like I know where the wires are, or whatever. Then they would cut, and the cut would be in a different set where the wires are in a different place, and they're doing it in a different way, so that you would never actually be able to figure out like um, there's a lot of misdirection apparently in that scene on purpose, to, so that people you know people couldn't figure it out, which I think that's is, that's very clever. Yeah, it's cool. And again, that goes to that the budget, you know, <laughs> like the fact that they were able to build three or four different versions of that same house set in order to, you know, in order to do that. And of course, that scene is anchored by the Edwin performance, Edwin, who we last saw as the Mad Hatter from Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. And he's wonderful, and his voice is wonderful. There's, there's, yeah, I have, no, I have no complaint with him in that scene. I just think the uh, it's it's uh, I don't know of all the parts in the movie, it's it's the part that's kind of like for me, it's just like okay, this that's it's okay. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of with Mary Poppins on that one. Mary Poppins is kind of like oh, don't you start, you know? <laughs> oh, and it's it's a long movie, and if you had to cut something, I think that would be a pretty good thing to cut. Except that you need the no a man named Smith with a wooden leg or a man with a, with a wooden leg named Smith for the, right. for the end of the movie. Yeah, it is it is important for the uh, the boardroom scene later because then when he starts laughing, he starts floating. And so that that also makes sense of that. So it's amazing that I mean, the movie's two hours and 15 minutes long. It's amazing that so many children sit still for it. Yeah. And I mean, I think that's probably part of the reason why, um, as a kid, we were up and running around and uh, jumping and dancing during the uh, <laughs> during the uh, Step in Time song. You know, not right. not only not only is it super catchy and it makes you just want to get up and dance, but uh, by that point in the movie, you kind of need to get up and dance. Yeah, you certainly need something as upbeat as that song at that point, because that is when that is when the movie starts to drag a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, the one one of the things about this movie that is is that it, it still feels long to me. You know, like um, as much as I love it and enjoy it, every time I watch it, we're like, wow, this is a really long movie. <laughs> yeah, and there's, there's just so much stuff in it, and 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 most of that stuff is is uh, important to the plot, narratively important. Like if if you pulled out Step in Time, for example. Or you pulled out I Love to Laugh. You would be missing things that you need in order to complete the movie. And in that sense, I don't think the movie is episodic the way that, like, The Many Adventures of Winnie the Pooh is episodic. But, uh, yeah, it is It is quite long. It, it's kind of amazing that it became a classic among children. Because the only other movie we've watched that has has hit two hours, I think, is Fantasia. Everything else has been about an hour and five, hour and ten minutes. So you're talking about something that's almost twice as long as everything else we've watched. Yeah, I was and and I was thinking about that as I was watching it. I was like, wow, this is, is it's uh, you know, we could watch Dumbo three times in here. <laughs> right, right. Were your did your kids sit still? Did you show it to them? Um, they have watched it before. Um, I'm I'm not with them right now because I'm traveling, and so they didn't watch it with me this time. But they they have seen it before. I don't remember. Um, I I do think that they got bored. 
um, partway through and we maybe had to stop it and watch it in, in two parts or um, that they left and came back or, or something, you know? So this is not one that we've watched frequently in my house. We, we have seen it, but it's not a, it's not a, a perennial favorite yet. My wife apparently watched it every week growing up. Wow. That's in a fact, lot. when we were bad mouthing, I love to laugh just now. She came in and gave us a double thumbs down. Oh, okay. Well, sorry, Victoria. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I think this movie, to change the subject uh, altogether, I think this movie has a great deal in common with Peter Pan. Uh, Both of them are set in Edwardian. Both of them are set in Edwardian Bloomsbury, London. Um, Both of them involve a kind of mystical being coming and disrupting a stodgy middle class family. And uh, at the beginning of both of them is a line, something like, this has all happened before. Yeah, I noticed that parallel with the line. And I'm still not, I'm not quite sure what that means in either movie. <laughs> there's a, there's a kind of cyclicality to this, right? That the magic, the magic ebbs and flows out of our world. Yeah, because Bert definitely seems to have an experience with Mary... Um, beyond this and uh, is hoping to have another one when she leaves. So he seems to be a, a kind of common, um, you know, what, like a, a commonality throughout these appearances, but we don't, we don't get, we're not privy to those other appearances, I guess. Right. The, the two big differences between this and Peter Pan are uh, number one, Peter Pan is about children learning to grow up. Whereas this movie is about, old people learning to be young again, as you mentioned, and that Peter Pan is about um, the kids, whereas this is about, I really think it's more about Mr. Banks than about the kids. And so you, it's almost like Mary Poppins is what happened after Peter Pan. Cause at the end of Peter Pan, Mr. Darling just begins to remember that this happened to him once too. So it's like it's like if the if if we saw the next two hours and fifteen minutes after Peter Pan, we might see something like Mary Poppins. Yeah, I think that movie's called Hook. Actually, that's, that's, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Hook and Peter and uh, Hook and uh, Mary Poppins do share some DNA, don't they? Oh, definitely. Yeah. But it's yeah, also I think... called Mary Poppins Returns, which I, I don't know if you've seen that, but it centers on. Um, is his name Michael? I, I was confused because his name is Michael in Peter Pan too. Uh, it, it centers on Michael as an adult, kind of relearning all this stuff. Mm. So, yeah, I've only seen the trailers. I haven't actually seen the the movie itself. It is the same movie, beat for beat. Like every scene in the original has a corresponding scene in the sequel. It's good. I enjoyed it, but it's the same movie. Huh. Yeah, that seems uh, typical of Disney these days, I guess. It really does. But you know, I'm never going to complain about Emily Blunt. Yeah. Well, or Lin Manuel Miranda. That's true. He's great in it. Yeah. Yeah. So I would, yeah, I would like to see it eventually, but haven't. I think it's on Netflix or Hulu. I don't know how much of that you have in China, but hey, you're in the United States for a few weeks. You should. That's true. Take yeah. advantage. I should take advantage. Yeah. Um. Yeah, so I think those uh yeah, the parallel between Peter Pan and, and Mary Poppins is interesting. Um and yeah, obviously uh that's gotta be intentional on the 
on the studio's part, right? Like they made both of them. So and there's only ten be... years between them. I mean, we, we've we've maybe done it as a service, but we sh- I mean we should have talked about this right after we talked about Sword in the Stone, which was what six months ago. Mm. So so I mean they're they're very close. There's only a couple of movies between them. Uh, so I, I do think that connection is interesting, especially since, as you say, they changed the time period from the original books in Mary Poppins. So, I mean, this is somebody at the studio must have said, oh, this is going to be very similar to Peter Pan. Yeah, this is the superior movie, I think, pretty, pretty clearly. But yeah, I think so. I think this movie. Um, yeah, this this maybe now would be an appropriate time to talk about that as you know like as a kind of a a culminating movie on on disney's life you know it's weird that it's not a animated feature um but i feel like this movie really does uh sum up uh some of his messages really um in in just a, a really nice way yeah i would agree and is this is this the last movie released in his lifetime uh there's I, probably more crappy mid 60s live action movies yeah probably the shaggy dog or the computer wore tennis shoes or flubber <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i i didn't check my timeline on that so um i'm not sure but um, there's not another cartoon that comes out because um jungle book is released after he dies he dies in 66 i think yeah and this is 64 so yeah, there's yeah, sure, surely there's something else in there, but it's the last thing we're talking about released before his death, and it it feels like that. This this even even with the Jungle Book, which he had something to do with, this movie bears his thumbprint in a way that movie does not. Yeah, and I think the the yeah, he was just much more heavily involved in this one than he was in in anything else. Much to P. L. Travers's disgust. Yeah. But, I mean, I think it ties up – I mean, we've been talking about, like, the innovations, you know? Like, that's one of the things that Walt Disney is, is known for throughout his life um, with, you know, uh, both the live action and the the animated movies as well as the theme parks and the, even the, uh, you know, the World's Fair that, that ended up getting – you know, that stuff started getting in- integrated into the parks. Like, you know, he was always a man looking toward the future in that way. Um, his – his love of, of innocence and um, you know the the belief that there's a child in, in all of us and those sorts of things and the enchant reenchantment of the world, um, I think all those things are you see in here here really well. Yeah, I agree. I think particularly even on like the reenchantment, like going back to I know we've talked about it a few times already, but like the chimney sweep and the you know the step in time and stuff. Like I mean, this is this is just. Uh, the the dirty yuckiest worst part of England, you know, <laughs> and uh, I mean, I think even as he's introducing, uh, uh, I, I it may be still being Chim Chim Maru or Chim Chim Marie. He says, you know, like uh, it would seem like the chimney sweep is the lowest rung on the ladder, you know, but but uh, he he has a way of of enchanting that, you know, and uh, I don't know that. Good. It's just good, clean soot, Michael. <laughs> you know, it's like that's right. Yeah. Never mind. I, you're gonna get black lung disease and die in a chimney. <laughs> right, but uh, not not if you turn the the smokestack into a into a staircase that takes you up to the heights of the city. And you know, this is this is the thing only the birds, the stars, and the chimney sweeps get to see. You know. 
that line about um I, I guess it's in Shem Chemari or one of the reprises of it where he where he says, uh, between the pavement and the stars, that's the chimney sweep world. That's a great line. Yeah, that's really great. Because who hasn't wanted to go up on the, the roof in a city and, you know, like see this super crowded, packed place from a uh solitary position. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're worth pointing out, you know who would actually be the chimney sweep? Michael. (laughs) (laughs) There's little kids they shove down those chimneys. That's right. That's 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 also true. In the in the um, sequel, it's a lamplighter, which is much less horrifying. Hmm. Yeah. I guess lamplighter would be another thing that Bert would, would potentially do. <laughs> like you yeah. said, like he's the master master of all trades, you know. He does everything. Yeah, but it's also in the um, you know, even in the uh, spoonful of sugar, like the the cleaning up of the room, you know, making you know uh, this idea that uh, you know, in every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Uh, it just I don't know. I, I find I the the way the the whole world becomes enchanted again. I think that's that's a nice summation of of uh disney's life work although i gotta say it's easy to say that uh there's an element of fun in every job that must be done when you can just snap your fingers and it's over easy for her to say yeah yeah she does kind of subvert her own message there doesn't she (laughs) well i wanted to talk a little bit about the some of the christian themes that we might see in this movie um so again, going back to this book, Christianity and the Culture Machine, uh, he says Christian theology is so fundamental to Western civilization and so irrepressibly dynamic that institutional lethargy and cultural containment cannot keep it from reasserting itself and insisting itself within the margins of popular cultural texts. Therefore, un- or sorry, not therefore, there under the radar screen, it operates counter hegemonically and in response to the aesthetic failures of the institutional church, unauthorized by the church, unorganized by any central idea or institution, a new Christian aesthetic can be found communicating the power and vitality of Christianity, its vision for a totalizing social transformation, its inexhaustible, unquenchable drive for the egalitarian community, and its resolute, resolute insistent, insistence on the transcendent. And I think uh, we've talked about several times like uh, finding uh, these kind of Christian themes within these movies, um, and I didn't have a good uh, way to talk about how uh why those keep showing up but i felt like this was really um a nice uh summary of it you know that it's the the christianity is so irrepressibly dynamic that it insists on on showing up um and so i was wondering uh he's he's got some points on on where he sees christianity popping up in this movie but i I was wondering what you thought about it before i just uh quote him (laughs) (laughs) what a what a tee up um (laughs) i i think the notion that you're supposed to be childlike is is pretty christian right jesus jesus says unless you become like one of these you will not enter the kingdom of heaven i'm not sure mr banks flying a kite is exactly what he's talking about but i think that sense of wonder must be part of it Mm. um the notion that you shouldn't we've talked about earlier that you shouldn't hoard money that you should use it for uh more or less the public good right give the money to the bird lady and it'll feed the birds and then also feed the bird lady i i think obviously that's a that's a christian idea where do you see yeah i think with the with the birds especially i think there's an idea that the the giving is not only for the receiver 
but also for the giver, right? Like it does, it does you good to be able to, I mean, cause her whole thing is like, it expands, it expands your vision, you know, um, beyond, beyond the end of your nose, as she says it, you know, like, um, to be able to see, uh, these, these small acts of good as being, um, uh, uh, what seeds, seeds of a new kingdom, really, right? Like it's a different, it's a different, view you know it's not it's not edwardian england that she's you know proposing here she's proposing something different right yeah oh. there's a there's a kind of quiet undermining of uh of the dead parts of society yeah the culture of death as pope francis says mm. yeah yeah and um i think the other what was i gonna say the other places you kind of oh in the uh, you know the after the uh, incident in the bank um, with the with the tuppence, and so what happens is Michael uh, refuses to give his tuppence to uh, to to open an account, and the uh, what's his name the the leader of the bank um, Dawes Dawes I think is right yeah Dawes um, snatches the money out of Michael's hand, and then Michael starts yelling give it back give it back, and this creates this run on the bank. Um, the first one since the Boston Tea Party, which I just thought was really funny. Like, why did they tie the Boston Tea Party into this? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but anyway, like, uh, he, uh, his refusal there, but then, uh, he comes back to his father and says, you know, we're sorry. We didn't, we didn't understand that, um, that this was going to create so much trouble for you. And, and he gives him the tuppence. And I think there's a real, um, I don't know, like a, a reconciliation, a, a, a wanting to make amends, like that goes beyond just like I'm sorry, but like um, I don't know. I think that there's a there's a symbol there of 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 trying to make it right that I think is is good. Yeah, absolutely. In this book, he draws um, some parallels between uh, Mary herself and uh, some. Uh, uh, he, he draws parallels between her and um, uh, St. Francis. He, see, he sees that in, uh, in Her with the Bird. Um, he sees the, that um, imagery of being very um, Franciscan. And then the idea of, um, yeah, you know, the, uh, I don't know, the, the finding the, the joy in the small things and stuff. He sees that as very uh, Franciscan. And also, um, I forget her name, uh, Teresa of... Avila? No, the other one, Lusso. Is that? Oh, yeah, Therese of Lusso. Yeah, thank you for pronouncing that correctly. The little flower. I thought I mispronounced that correctly. Um, so, yeah. You know, uh, it's funny. We've talked... How many times on this show have we talked about how good Disney characters are always... Uh, close to the animals. How many times have we talked about that? And we've never brought up St. Francis. Yeah. Like yeah. the most, the most famous Christian example <laughs> of somebody being friendly with the animals. Well, you know, we got to keep, we got to keep, you know, we got to dole these out slowly, you know, the inside slowly so that people keep listening, I guess. But yeah. Um, I thought I thought that was uh, an interesting analysis and a and a another you know sort of Christian way to look at, at all the stuff that Mary's that Mary's doing that she's kind of creating these you, you know within I mean she 
she says, uh, what an impertinent thing to say that I would place ideas in people's heads, but that's her whole, her, that's her whole thing, right? <laughs> she is placing ideas in these kids' heads of a different way to live and a different way to look at life. Um, she's making little disciples out of them and, and they get, they kind of go into the world and they're, you know, they're also, um, you know, I think meant to be transforming their community as far as they can, you know, like she works on Mr. Banks through the kids. Um, so. And on their mother as well, actually. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, she just comes in and turns over the tables in this house, stays until the winds change, and then she's off to do it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So I want to run something weird by you, something that did not occur to me until about 10 minutes before we were recording, because I was reading Jacques Maritain's book, Art and Scholasticism. So I was reading this right before... We recorded, and I started thinking about Bert and his uh, uh, chalk pictures. And um, one of Maritain's points in Art and Scholasticism is that in the Renaissance, artists began thinking very highly of themselves and seeing themselves as, in some ways, the pinnacle of society. And then you really, you really, really see that in the early 20th century when Maritain is writing um People like James Joyce, I mean, they, they have this really clear religious vision for their art, uh, art as a religion. And um, our listeners who want to hear more about that, uh, I did an interview with Christina Bieber-Lake about her book on Flannery O'Connor for profiles, uh, Christian Humanist Profiles, last year, I think, or maybe this year. Um, so we talk about that more. But I, I want to read a passage from um, from Maritain, and you tell me if you, if you think I'm being absurd. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be before they were alive if one of us didn't make some sort of uh, far fetched, overreaching religious argument, right? That's right. In the powerfully social structure of medieval civilization, the artist had only the rank of artisan, and every kind of anarchical development was forbidden his individualism because a natural social discipline imposed on him from the outside certain limiting conditions. He did not work for the rich and fashionable and for the merchants, but for the faithful. It was his mission to house their prayers, to instruct their intelligences, to delight their souls in their eyes. Matchless epic in which an ingenious people was formed in beauty without even realizing it. Just as the perfect religious ought to pray without knowing that he is praying, in which doctors and image makers lovingly taught the poor, and the poor delighted in their teaching because they were all of the same royal race, born of water and the spirit. Man created more beautiful things in those days, and he adored himself less. The blessed humility in which the artist was placed exalted his strength and his freedom. The Renaissance was to drive the artist mad and to make of him the most miserable of men at the very moment when the world was to become less habitable for him by revealing to him his own peculiar grandeur and by letting loose on him the wild beast beauty which faith had kept enchanted and led after it, docile. So I just think about Bert and those sidewalk drawings, which he does not to glorify himself but in order to delight the people around him and you know if they wanted to give him a copper for it that's cool but if not they can just look at it and when they wash away he has a very humble notion of what they're worth you know what i mean the the it's not like the world has lost some great masterpiece this is just some quiet work he did in the park and uh, it was there to be enjoyed while it while it lasted and that that seems very maritanian to me but maybe it's because uh I read that passage 20 minutes before we started talking about this movie. I don't think, I don't know. I think, I think um, you're, you're right though. Like they, they do connect so nicely. So, I mean, maybe you, you would not have made the, the connection otherwise, but I do think they connect really well because um, 
yeah, Bert, Bert could not be more humble in his artistry, right? Like there's not, a, there's, I can't even imagine what more humble in his artistry would be, um, in this. Um, and, uh, yeah, just thinking about the, the, there, there was something you said in there about, you know, it, it kind of, it was, it was for the faithful to kind of guide them. Um, and, and Bert is a guide and, and he guides them into, into this, this, it's not a it's not a faithful drawing, you know. Like it, it's not meant to, you know, to draw them to reflect on, um, you know, some sort of uh, deep spiritual truth. Like maybe some of the the you know the more iconic drawings would be. But in in a way, it is, you know. Like it, it draws them actually literally into the picture, you know, to enjoy it in that way. And it's um, meant to give them delight, which is which is one of the one of the terms Maritain uses there, right? Yeah. Yeah, an an absolute delight, and an and uh, uh, it's not an escape from this world because it's temporary, you know. But there there is a, it's sort of a, um, I don't know, it's a it's a rapturous sort of, you know, view of, you know, what uh, what the world made right might be like, you know. Yeah, and, and I'll I'll point out, um, Maritan says that beauty is ecstatic, meaning it takes you outside of yourself. Mm. Once again, I've left academia, so if any of our listeners would like to write the uh, Maritan Mary Poppins paper, just, you know, give me a thank you credit and a footnote. Yeah. It's all yours. You can call it Maritan Poppins. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, just, just, just something I've been thinking about because of the other things I've been reading. Yeah, I think it's wonderful. And it kind of ties into what we were talking about last month with the rescuers, that kind of smallness as a virtue. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very much so. Clearly, I'm working through some stuff here, Josh. <laughs> yeah, but you're, you're helping all of us to work through it, too, so I love it. Um, yeah, I think, it, yeah, actually listening back to that episode last month, I was like, oh, I should have had Michael talk more on smallness if he wanted to. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't sure if I, if I cut you off last month. So did you have more that you wanted to say on, on no. smallness? I, I will say about that episode, we got more Twitter feedback than I think we've ever gotten um, on, on that episode, on the rescuers of all things. People really, really love that movie. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, it was very, I, I loved, I loved getting all the feedback. So thank you all of you who, who, uh, reached out to us in that way we really appreciate it yeah i do think though that like what you're saying like that is that i think that does is maybe part of why that that moment in the movie is so um memorable you know besides the i mean we talked about you know the the song being one of the best songs you know the holly holly jolly 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 holiday and the uh and supercalifragilistic is in that part too, and you know, so I mean, there's there's a lot working for it, um, it that that scene in the movie. But I, I do think there's the you know who wouldn't who wouldn't love to jump through a sidewalk painting every once in a while, you know, um, or you know the that's that's kind of what art does for us. Right, I was going to say that's the experience of looking at a really beautiful painting. You mm-hmm. jump into it. You you forget the world you're standing in. You maybe even forget who you are for a moment. Yeah, and you you focus your attention on the painting, yeah. or movie, or song, or whatever, whatever mm-hmm. it is. Yeah. And I think it's so appropriate that then in the movie, even it, it you know it, it it ends with the rain, you know, washing it away, and it's I, I don't know, it's the um, as you said, it's that 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 humbleness with which he reflects on that and he's like oh there's 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 always more where that came from there's that there's a um 
I don't I don't know. There's a there's an opening up and a freedom in the uh, not living in this sort of uh, this view of scarcity, right? Like for him, there there is no scarcity. There's always another job to do. There's always uh, another uh, another painting that could be done or whatever, you know. Well, and and also you're not you're not the important thing here. Mm-hmm. I, we, yeah. I think we talked about this off the air last week. That that millennials. There was a study a few years ago that said millennials would rather be famous than rich. And I, I think, as someone who has been subject to that, I, I think I think Mary Poppins, weirdly enough, and the rescuers might give us a means of resisting that. Resisting that because, like, say, yeah, keep keep going, say some more. But, but because they're giving you a model of of life that is not self-aggrandizing, a life that's about doing these small things that a relatively few number of small number of people will will notice. And that's cool, you know. Yeah, I, I think that's really great because I mean, I mean, that's uh, uh, you're right. There, there is a really strong resistance to that within the movie because even um, uh, Mr. Banks, you know, like his his whole thought is is a, you know, uh, when when his dreams are shattered, he talks about you know what his dreams were and how <laughs> you know like how he wanted to. Uh, you know, expand himself and and uh, and not you know not be small you know to be known. Um, but then, yeah, everybody else in the movie is is doing the the small things that that actually end up making the huge difference in the end. Even Mary Poppins herself, you know, she's only in this family for a, a very short time, you know, until the wind changes, um, and and not in any sort of way that's going to be known to anybody outside the family there's the scene at the end where her uh her id i suppose the 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 parrot on the end of the umbrella says they love their father more than you and she says well that's how it should be yeah that's like appropriate. She, has, she has a very clear sense of of the hierarchy of loves mm-hmm. i don't know i feel like the last few episodes have just been the listeners listening to me work out my personal problems but hey here we are <laughs> Hopefully, hopefully it helps somebody else. Yeah, I hope so. It's an anti-idolatrous movie, I guess is what I'm saying. It's a it's a movie that keeps you from from placing um, unimportant things at the top of your scale of importance. Mm. And in that, maybe maybe that's the sense in which it's the it's a Christian movie. And I mean, obviously, there's no there's there's no hint of what's most important, but it is it is at least burning down some particular idols. Yeah, I like that. It's an anti-idolatrous movie. Yeah. Well, things got weird again. Thanks, listeners. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Well, that was... Um, I think that might be a good ending point, unless you had some more you wanted to talk about. No, it seems good to me. Yeah, that seems like a really good ending point. Tear down your idolatries and and uh, yeah, create create the right hierarchical uh, view of love in your life. I like I like that. That's good. Thank you. Next month we're talking about the fox and the hound, 
we've entered the uh, the genuinely terrible era of Disney, I believe. I haven't seen Fox and the Hound since I was a kid. Yeah, I haven't either. And that, but the Fox and the Hound was one that um, my younger brother, at least, would you know watched probably on a weekly basis. <laughs> so wow. um, I I do remember it being on a lot in my house, but I but um, I don't remember much about it now. So it'll be interesting going back and watching that one. I, I my recollection is it's pretty bleak. Yeah. So we have that to look forward to. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> um, and we have somebody joining us for that episode. Is that right? Yeah, a friend of mine, Wesley, is going to come on and talk about that movie with us. He he picked it, which uh, seems like kind of an odd pick to me. But hey, uh, I'm glad somebody's there to talk about it. You know, the the strange thing is uh, Nathan Gilmore, my uh, co-host on the Christian Humanist podcast, is coming on to talk about the Black Cauldron. Of all things. So, you know, there are weirder picks than Fox and the Hound. Yeah. All right. Well, it, I, I look forward to discussing that one with you. I need to, um, it, I think it'll be fun to, to go back and watch it again. I know um, probably the fact that I can't remember anything of it speaks to um, <laughs> how bad it is, but um, it'll be, it'll be good to, to revisit some of those memories. So Anyway, our press liaison is Kristen Philippic, and we are on the old interwebs uh, with the most sporadic show notes of any podcast at beforetheywere.live. Uh, you can help us continue this conversation by finding us on Twitter. I'm at the underscore alt, and Michael is at Michael Farmer. And as we mentioned in the show, we really we really appreciate that. We really enjoy when you guys reach out to us. Uh, so for Michael Farmer, I'm Josh Altman-Schofer. I just want to gratefully say that we know there are a great number of podcasts out there you could be spending your time on, and uh, we appreciate you choosing us. We want to encourage you to set your podcast player's dials to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, where you'll find an abundance of new and old shows to keep you going. Good day, Governor.